So I wonder if you've ever wanted to give up on something, right? Just throw in the towel and call it quits. This past summer, my wife and I were driving out west, and we thought it'd be a good idea just along the way to hike a 14er. We drove the 14 hours out to Colorado, going from roughly, what, 1,000 feet to up about 10,000 feet where we stayed the night. We rolled in around midnight, and of course, because we were trying to make good time, it meant we weren't making lots of stops along the way, weren't drinking too much, so rolled in around midnight, got up at 4 a.m. to hike, very little sleep, no time to acclimate to the altitude, not much in the way of hydration the, way, the day before. You can all see where this is going. The hike, though, it started off wonderfully, right? There was beautiful crisp morning air, right? The dew just covered lush meadows as we made our way up some switchbacks, gorgeous views, and we finally summited the first of what were sort of two peaks, two 14ers right next together. And it was as we got to the top of the first one, sat down, you know, took the, took the picks up there and started to have a snack that I realized I wasn't feeling so hot. Got a little lightheaded, but thought, you know, I'll keep pressing on. We then descended a little bit in order to ascend up to the second peak. And that's when I realized that I really wasn't feeling so well, right? The water in my stomach that I was attempting to drink, all it was turning to knots. My head started throbbing and I started to vomit every few minutes. Altitude sickness, if you've never had it, it is a real thing. And the dehydration and the exhaustion, just mix all that, and it was a wicked cocktail. But here's the thing, I'm stubborn, and we made it all this way. And the second peak was up there, and my wife's like, no, we're going back. And I said, no, we're going. And she looked at me, and she's like, that's fine. I'm like, you're a nurse, you can help, right? Well, we go, and it's brutal. I got to stop about every one or two minutes to rest. Uh, Folks are passing by asking if I'm okay. A woman who looked like she was about 80 was offering me her electrolytes, I looked, I guess, that bad, and somehow we made it up to the top of the second peak. I don't really remember it, other than it was supposed to be around 45 minutes. I think it took about two and a half hours, and friends, at this point, I was just a total mess. I could barely take 10 steps without having to stop. I was still sick, nothing left in my stomach, right? My my head at this point was like in a vice, and we were being passed by everyone until no one passed us anymore because we were literally the last people on the mountain. It's now afternoon where you don't want to be above the tree line, and of course, what happens? Hail. Right? I just wanted to throw in the towel, right? I wanted to call it quits. Obviously, we made it here, thanks to my wife, who pretty much drug me home. All that to say... Perhaps you have found such a time where you wanted to call it quits. You wanted to give up. You know, in in careers right now, we're seeing some of that. It's a real challenge with police officers, a rising violence. Lack of political sport has led them to leave the force in droves. Seattle has lost about 30% of its police force. So too with nurses and teachers during the pandemic. But friends, this sort of walking away, giving up, right, it's not unique just to such, to such fields. It's also true of Christian workers. So a study was done some while back, about 38,000 missionaries, and whether it was over disillusionment or discouragement, over 40% of those missionaries quit before they ever hit the fourth year. 
And if you look out further, past four years, those numbers just continue to rise. Friends, so too with pastors. Barna did a study this past fall, and 40% of pastors in the last year have apparently seriously considered quitting. I read one study that estimated one in 10 who go into pastoral ministry actually retire in pastoral ministry. Now, I'm not sure if a 90% attrition rate is quite right, but it is rather high. That's in my anecdotal evidence. So friends, how are we to think about these things? Even Christian workers giving up and throwing in the towel. Well, I want to invite you to turn with me again to the book of 2 Corinthians. The book of 2 Corinthians. We're in chapter 4, verses 1 to 6. You can pick up and you find that on the Bibles and the seatbacks before you on page 965. Page 965. And if you're just joining us, Paul's ministry there in Corinth, it was hanging on but by a thread. Not only is his life filled, as we saw in chapter 1, with all kinds of troubles and affliction, but there's deepening relational friction there between Paul and some of the so-called leaders in that congregation. And so with all that in mind, we pick up chapter 4, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, Therefore, having this ministry, by the mercy of God, we do not lose heart, but we have renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. And even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. For God who said, let light shine out of darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Now, if you've been listening carefully in the series, you've probably picked up a lot of words and phrases that sound familiar, such as this phrase, ministry, or tampering, or sort of peddling back in 2.17, God's word. This idea that Paul has to commend himself. He speaks again of those who are perishing, of those who are blinded or have veils over their eyes. There is light, face, image, glory. All of those themes right here are themes we've seen through chapters 1 through 3. Basically, what Paul's doing is he's pulling all those threads of authentic gospel ministry that he's been arguing for, and he's pulling those threads together, and he's creating a tapestry. He's giving us a picture of what gospel ministry ought to look like in the face of discouragement and difficulty. And his basic argument is that the glory of gospel ministry, this gospel ministry just talked about last week in 3718, the glory of this gospel ministry promotes dedication, right? He says he doesn't lose heart, promotes dedication despite rejection through faithful proclamation. I think that's what Paul's arguing, that the glory of the gospel ministry that he's received, that he's inherited, it promotes dedication despite rejection through faithful gospel proclamation. And so we're just going to break that sentence down. It's going to serve as our outline. First, we're going to think about gospel dedication. That's right there in verses 1 to 2. 
Then we're looking about gospel rejection. That's verses 3 and 4. And then gospel proclamation in verses 5 and 6. Let's first think about gospel dedication. Gospel dedication. Now we read right there in 4.1, we have that opening word, therefore, which of course links 4.1 to 6 to what came just before. And recall back in 3.7 through 18, to those who would question Paul's own credentials and his competency for ministry, maybe these who were questioning him were, were looking back to Moses and his model for ministry, right? Paul has just argued that the glory of the law under Moses can't compare with the glory of the Spirit under Christ. And because Paul has this glorious ministry of new covenant gospel ministry, the ministry where God lifts the veil of unbelief, this ministry of glory where we're beholding and becoming more like Christ, 318. Therefore, Paul says, in light of all that, we don't lose heart. We don't lose heart. That word for losing heart speaks to not growing weary, right? Overcoming fatigue and discouragement. In fact, much of chapter 4 is considered with this basic theme. Because if you look forward to 416, Paul's going to come back, right? 4.16, so we do not lose heart. It's obvious that this discouragement and losing heart's a real threat to Paul. And we can understand why if we consider Paul in his own circumstances. You know, many of those people to whom he preached and he planted a church and, and he pastored them, well, many of these people have in fact turned against Paul, right? There's persecution from without and there's desertion from within, Add to that physical trials and the temptation for Paul just to quit and throw in the towel and give up. Well, that temptation must have been real. Maybe in those hardest moments, I don't know, the ancient equivalent of like LinkedIn or Indeed or whatever, Paul's out there surfing and thinking, surely I could do something else with my life. I can franchise my tent making business, whatever it is, something other than this to these ungrateful people. You know, friends, it's no different with Christian workers today. You know, I already noted some of the stats about those who see, serve in cross-cultural ministry, even in pastoral ministry. But thinking specifically about Paul's work, which was really a cross-cultural kind of work, that can be especially hard with unique demands, which is one of the reasons why this should serve as a reminder to us that we ought to be praying. We as members of UBC ought to be praying for those that we support as a church who are doing cross-cultural work. Right, that they in their work would not lose heart, that they would not give up or give in, but they would persevere despite hardship, right, and despite difficulties. You know, it's one of the reasons why in our own church directory, if you don't have one, we usually have them right back at Connecting Point. I pray we still do even this morning, but, you know, starting right there on page 23, or rather 25 and into 26, we list all of our international supportive workers, those who are trying to do good gospel work overseas, and we list them here so you can pray for them, so you can be reminded of them, so we, they have descriptions around their ministry, so you can pray thoughtfully for the kind of ministries they have and what they do, and in that way, we as a church who bear spiritual responsibility for them, many of those folks we've sent out as a church, right, part of our responsibility is to pray for them, to care for them, to try to encourage them in their work, because surely in the midst of it, they're going to be met with great discouragements. And it's one of the reasons why we love on Sunday nights. If you haven't come, I encourage you to do that. We usually pray for a supportive worker, hear an update, and then pray for them as a congregation. 
But friends, notice particularly why Paul doesn't lose heart. Why does Paul not lose heart? Because he has this ministry, he says, by God's mercy. Or it might even be read, as some other translations do, because of God's mercy. You know, recognize mercy is not just being treated better than we deserve. Mercy in Scripture is being given the opposite of, in fact, what we deserve. So mercy is what we see with Paul, how God turns a terrorist into a teacher of the gospel. And friends, that's what God does. That's who God is. He is merciful. And this kind of mercy is unique to God. You know, there is no mercy in the real world. You know, Paul was, uh, Paul, Cole was praying in that pastoral prayer about so many of the needs in this world which reflect we don't live in a merciful world. There's no mercy right now in Ukraine. There's no mercy for Uyghurs in China. There's no mercy for women in Afghanistan. There's no mercy even here in the U.S. for babies in the womb. The world doesn't delight in mercy. The world doesn't understand mercy. Right? Politics, economics, social media, they're not merciful. God alone is merciful. And Paul knows that all he has is through God's mercy. That's the ministry he has. It is only through God's mercy. Paul knows it's not through his own merit. It's not his merit. It's not his gifts. It's not his achievement. It's what God has given him graciously. And friends, nothing else in the world operates like this. You know, think admissions programs into colleges don't operate on mercy, do they? I know you got a 17 on the ACT, but we're going to treat you like you got a 36, and you're going to get a full ride. Every parent would love to hear that. You know, I've got four getting ready for college, some in college. I'd love to hear that. That's not how the world works. Athletics doesn't operate on mercy. I know you bricked that last shot. You could have won the game, but you know what? We're going to count it, and you're a winner. And that's not how the world works. Work, employment doesn't operate on mercy. I know your sales figures are the worst in the whole department. But we're going to pretend like they're the best and treat you like the best and compensate you like they're the best and even promote you as if you're leading your department. No, that's not how the world works. Friends, mercy Giving us the opposite of what we deserve is distinctly and uniquely what God does. It's what he does. It's what makes God so beautiful and so lovely to those who know that they need mercy. In the parable of Jesus, like the tax collector, who recognizes he has nothing and yet beats his breast before God in recognition he has nothing, God is merciful, and that is glorious. And yet, it's the same mercy of God that can be so maddening and so frustrating for those who don't really grasp they need it. Those who love to keep religious score, those who like to measure their achievements, those who like to rate their own righteousness, mercy to them is a dreadful thing. Mercy to them is a maddening thing like the Pharisee. Friends, it's this deep appreciation of God's mercy in Paul's life that sustains him. Friends, I wonder if this mercy 
is what sustains you? Does God's mercy sustain you? Because notice Paul says he doesn't lose heart and he doesn't become discouraged because all is well in his ministry. He's not saying his you know, ministry is a bowl of cherries. That's not Paul's experience. It's not because his health report is excellent or his career and marital prospects are picking up. right? It's not this job or this trip or this body or this blessed life. Paul says it's this gospel of mercy and this ministry of mercy. And for Paul, that's enough. Friends, is that mercy enough for you? If God ripped everything from you, would he still be enough? Just ask yourself that and attempt to be honest right in that question. If God took everything from you, would he still be infinitely worthy of your love and your affection and your devotion? Recognize Satan didn't think so as he went to Job. Assume Job would curse God and die. But friends, what about you? What about you? You know, it's easy, it's really easy to put our hope and our joy and our confidence in other things. And sometimes what God does in his kindness to us is he takes those things from us. He disabuses us of them. I wonder this morning if God is tearing anything from you, pulling anything away from you. And if so, friend, recognize God is doing that. Because he's merciful, he does it so that he can give you something better, something eternal, something more glorious, something more hopeful, something more promising, something finally more lasting than anything this life has to offer. And that, too, is a mercy of God. Friends, it's why Paul, as he says, doesn't have to resort to gimmicks or games in verse 2. He says, we've renounced disgraceful, underhanded ways. We refuse to practice cunning or to tamper with God's word. You know, back in 217, he, he referenced those who peddle God's word, those who swindle in order to deceive others, so to speak. You know, that word for cunning here in 4.2 is going to be later used in 2 Corinthians 11.3 of Satan himself and how he beguiled Eve. So Paul is subtly here calling out his opponents, these false teachers who are functioning much like con artists who are intentionally deceiving some of those there within the Corinthian community. And he's calling them out and naming them after the master of deception, the devil himself, by using that word cunning. Well, how are they doing this? Well, they're tampering, Paul says, with God's word. You know, that word for tamper was often used of diluting wine. So Paul's saying they're tampering with God's word by diluting the word, by watering down the word. Paul's saying that in doing so and by watering it down, they're removing it of its power and of its potency. You know, back in 1 Corinthians 1, right, that's how the cross of Christ is emptied of its power. This tampering, this diluting, this watering down of God's word. And we're going to think about what that looks like more in, in verse 5. But for Paul's opponents, recognize the word of God has become a tool not for spiritual maturation, but now it's become a tool for manipulation. And that's how they're using it. And yet in contrast to them, Paul says in verse 2, he says of himself, by the open statement of the truth, 
we would commend ourselves to everyone's conscience in the sight of God. I know it says we. Paul, you remember back in chapter 1, he refers to himself in that authorial we. He's gone back and he's doing it again in verse 4. Verse 4 is heavily autobiographical. Sorry, verse 4. Chapter 4 is heavily autobiographical. So Paul's most likely referring predominantly to his own experience, right? He's referring again in that authorial we. And just recognize, as he says, that it's by this open statement of the truth. What Paul's doing is he's distinguishing himself from these false teachers. He's saying, listen, for me, you've, you know my ministry. It's not about gimmicks and games. That's not how I deal with you. It's not about manipulation. It's not about the substitutions of man's words over God's words. Paul's saying, I don't need to dress it up. I don't need to twist it by adding to it or subtracting from it. But I'm not trying to change things you might dislike or find offensive. Instead, he says, I set forth the truth plainly, trusting that that truth and word will do the work. Friend, I hope Paul's example here of just setting forth the truth plainly, I hope that's an encouragement to you in your evangelism. You know, sometimes we think if I'm going to share the gospel with someone, I better like have a PhD in apologetics. I got to have answers to every question. But that's not how Paul handles it. You know, it is okay not to have answers to every question. When I get into evangelistic conversations, I will often find myself in a situation where I'm not exactly sure how to respond, and sometimes the best thing to simply say is, I don't know. But you know what? I'll get back to you. Let's, I'll follow up on that. We don't need to have answers to every possible and conceivable question out there. And we want to persuade Right? We do want to do that. Paul seeks to persuade, but he doesn't finally rest his confidence in the power of his own persuasion and the winsomeness of those arguments. No, he shares the truth. He positively puts forth gospel truth plainly and clearly, and he trusts God will honor that word. Friends, that's all we have to do. If you know the gospel, you can share the gospel. And in contrast to those who resort to this kind of trickery, this sophistry, this chicanery, Paul says, yeah, I don't do that. It's all about simplicity and integrity. The very things he mentioned back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14. This simplicity and integrity of his ministry, both in word, he says, and in deed. And that commends the gospel to all. And that's the kind of gospel dedication Paul has as a result of the ministry God's given him. But friends, just because Paul claims, uh, rather proclaims this gospel openly and honestly, that doesn't mean that everyone who hears it responds to it, right? Happily and cheerfully, not at all. Sadly, the good news is not good news to all. Some reject it. And friends, that brings us to our second point, this gospel rejection. Gospel rejection. That's verses 3 and 4. For Paul will write, Verse 3, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. Now, just stopping there, reading the passage with my family this week, we were discussing it, and it was Maggie who said, hey, Dad, why does Paul say our gospel? Isn't it just the gospel? Which was a good question. And lest you think that Paul's perhaps a postmodern, you know, you have your gospel and I have my gospel, they have their gospel, we have our gospel, right? They're all equal, good, same, what have you, whatever floats your boat. That's actually not what Paul's saying here. Now, Paul preaches one gospel, and Paul is at pains when the Galatian church has misunderstood it to correct it and make sure they understand it rightly. 
Now it seems Paul mentions our gospel here to remind the Corinthians that they with Paul share this same hope. It's not just Paul's gospel, it's ours. It's what we share together. And it also is in distinction most likely to their gospel, to those who don't preach what Paul had preached when he planted that church. Because we know there are false teachers in Corinth who by implication are either teaching a false gospel or at least an incomplete or an errant or confused one. And friends, if there's one thing throughout history that we learn, it's that, and honestly, if you know your own heart, I know mine, this is true, it's that we have within us the subtle desire at times to tweak the gospel in order to make it more attractive and less offensive. I know when I'm with family, you know, when you're at that moment around the table and it's a holiday and you're talking and then someone, my Unitarian family, New England, some, so some families say like politics and religion and money are off the table in family conversations, not my family. Like that's all fair game. And they go at it, right? And you get in this conversation, I'm like, oh no, how do I do this in a way that's not horribly offensive to all my family? Well, there's that temptation to smooth the rough edges. Perhaps Paul knew that temptation to tweak it. And the reality is Paul preached a gospel that Greeks found utterly ridiculous and Jews completely scandalous, right? So whomever he preached to, they would mock Paul's message, it was roundly condemned by all, right? It, it's offensive because it implies this gospel Paul preached that we're all morally bankrupt. We're all at war and at enmity with God. You know, Christians are sometimes asked, you know, why do bad things happen to good people? But the, the Bible simply says, you know, reject the, reject the presumption. There, there are no good people. Bad things only happen to one person who was good, and that was Jesus, Right? We all deserve hell, and we deserved it yesterday. And that's what the Bible says clearly to us. And friends, that's a hard message, right? Who likes to swallow that pill? But it's not just offensive, it's exclusive, right? Paul's preaching, and he notes, verse 3, those who are perishing. And he means spiritually perishing. Remember, he talked about that back as well in the ministers of the New Covenant, um, Oh, actually, back there, sorry, those who are perishing, that's back in 2.15, right, picking up that theme. But point being, not all in Paul's mind go to heaven. There is an exclusivity to the gospel. The Bible teaches only one God and one Savior, Jesus Christ, therefore one way to be saved. And in a world of Paul's day that literally traded upon and depended upon polytheism, the worship of many gods, right, depended upon that for its very existence, this whole, neo, this whole idea would have been abhorrent and obnoxious just as much to their ears as it is to our own ears. Which means, friend, if you're here today, you do need to hear that there are just two categories of people finally in the Bible. There are those who are being saved and there are those who are perishing. And more important than whether or not Arkansas beats Gonzaga or your child gets into the college of their choice, or whether or not you have a date for prom, is whether or not you are saved or whether or not you're perishing. And friends, if you are uncertain of that question, I mean, that is the most important question that this text would put before you today. Are you saved or are you perishing? And the message Paul preached 
which is just the straight, plain gospel message, is that we are all perishing apart from Christ, but in Christ and in the perfect righteousness of Christ. Because as Mario was praying, because he lived perfectly, and then because he died on the cross sacrificially for sinners and then rose from the grave as proof that God had accepted that sacrifice for sin because someone has to pay the penalty of sin and that's what Christ did upon the cross. As proof of that, he rose from the grave such that all of those who see their need for a savior, who know they're morally bankrupt, who know they have no standing before God, no hope apart from God's mercy, they can repent and believe and God welcomes them and he saves them. And friends, if you've not trusted in that message, that's what the Bible calls you to do, to repent and to believe and to trust in this gospel. You know, I'm often uh, at that back door. I try to get to that back door right after service. If you'd ever love to talk with me about that, I'd love to chat with you. Love to talk with you more about what it would look like just to follow Christ if you have any questions. But it's not only offensive, it's not only exclusive, Recognize this gospel is deeply subversive in Paul's day, right? Jesus alone is to be worshiped, which meant not other gods, which meant not the emperor of Rome, who himself was considered a god. Friends, in Paul's day, that language, that's not just hate speech. That's something much greater. That was treasonous. That was subversive. To say Jesus is Lord is to say that Caesar wasn't. And that was to put you in the crosshairs of Rome and straight headed to death. It was a subversive message. And the temptation in every age, given the exclusivity, the offense of it, the subversive nature of it, is we want to tweak it and we want to twist it. We want something more polite, something more tasteful, something more civilized, more palatable, less objectionable. Friends, that's not open to us. To alter it is to abandon it. Because the problem isn't finally the message, as Paul says. It's the one who veils that message, verse 4. It's the God of this world who's blinded the minds, Paul says, of unbelievers. Now, when he refers to the God of this world, that's Paul's way of referring right there to Satan himself, who in John 12 we read is the ruler of this world. Right? He's called a God, so to speak, because he has dominion, Albeit it's a limited dominion, it's a dominion, as the ESV says, of this world, or maybe even more clearly, of this age, this age we live in. So it's not eternal dominion, it's a, it's a limited dominion, and it's a dominion because he has subjects as well, right, unbelievers. And Satan actively works to conceal the gospel from those who don't possess it, right? He's blinding their minds, Paul says, once again, it just challenges us. I know I was a little provocative in saying we don't have free will. You can believe it all you want. It's not in the Bible. But just yet again, just want to point out this notion that we can believe whatever we wish with nothing pressing upon us, nothing willing us one way or another. Right here, Paul's saying actually Satan is at work blinding the minds of unbelievers so that they can't believe. There are spiritual powers at play that keep people from the light. You know, many of you are familiar with the new Batman movie. I would ask you how many of you have seen it, but I'm not going to do it. Um, it's, I think it's already grossed something like 500 million worldwide. I think it's the best movie since COVID hit, which probably isn't saying much, but it's been a big hit nonetheless. And yet one of the things many have observed is just how dark the film is. I mean, like physically, literally dark. Nothing is shot in the light. 
The entire film was shot basically in the dark. It was so dark that when they were trying to film, they couldn't see any faces. So they had to stop and they had to develop new lenses for the cameras so that those lenses could pick up the slightest hint of light across a face, even if it meant everything else got blacked out. Well, in some ways, friends, that, that is a fitting parable for our own age because we often like to romanticize the darkness. I think that's in part because most of us naturally relate to the darkness. We might even prefer the darkness over light. You know, John says in John 3, and this is judgment, that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. I know what it's like to walk out of a, a film. You've been in a dark room, especially like that one where there's no light for like 10 hours, it seems. Long film. Obviously, I saw it. Um, so, you're go- and you walk outside, and you walk out in the noonday sun, and it's blinding, right? You want to close your eyes. You want to turn around and walk right back into the dark theater. Friends, that's just like it is with us when in our sin we're confronted with God's light. And yet the work of the gospel, Paul says, is to take us out of darkness. Like a lamp shining in a dark place, 2 Peter 1. The work of the gospel points us to the glory of Christ, who Paul says is the very image of God. So when Paul says, Paul says that, that Christ is the image of God, part of what Paul's communicating is, do you want to know what God is like? Then look to Christ. Christ brings clarity to the hazy notions of what an immortal, invisible God, this God who dwells in unapproachable light, first Timothy 6, what is this God like? Look to Christ. In Christ we see who God is, a God who creates and a God who redeems. In Christ we learn what God is like, right? He's one who's merciful and loving. In Christ we see what God does, right? God restores light where there was darkness and he's redeeming humanity through the resurrection of Jesus upon the cross. That's what God does, Christ is, Hebrews 1, 3, the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And yet, Paul laments that so many are blinded to these realities and they reject the gospel. Which is one reason, I think, why we should be skeptical of programs, gospel programs that offer and promote maybe even guarantee results. So there was a, there is rather a popular evangelism program uh, and some of this, there was a representative at the local Baptist Association recently and he was, he was advocating and, and highlighting how this one program and through this gospel program, 21 million people have gotten saved in the last 11 months. Not even a full year, 21 million Friends, that's more than the populations of Romania, China, uh, not China, goodness, but Chile. (laughs) China's a little larger than that. The Netherlands, Syria, 21 million. That's a crazy number, one program. And the message was, you discourage in your church, come do this, and you can see just as many people get saved, you know, relatively speaking. You know, at the State Baptist Convention this past year, a pastor boasted of over a 1,000 people who had come to faith in just a few short months, three months, less than three months. In his suburban town, 
If you'd follow this program, pursue these spontaneous baptisms, this can happen at your church and pastors are lining up to talk to them. There are movements in the missions world that similarly promise immediate results, look for rapid multiplication, disciple-making movements, church-planting movements. And friends, I just mention all this insofar as to say, I would love for these things to be true. Who wouldn't want to see 21 million people saved? But our zeal and our love of numbers, if we're not careful, will hinder us. Because that replaces biblical realism with a kind of human optimism that is just not really there in the New Testament. You know, it's tough to know. Uh, It's tough to have, obviously, statistics. But many estimate that less than 2% of the Greco-Roman world in Paul's day came to faith in Christ. It made meaningful inroads, significant impacts. But in terms of total numbers, in comparison to all of society, 2% is not a lot. Which begs the question... Have we discovered techniques that Paul himself lacked? Or are we prone to falling for gimmicks that don't last? Yet despite the rejection, Paul did not give up. You might have thought he would give up, but he didn't give up on gospel proclamation. So we've thought about gospel dedication, we've thought about gospel rejection, now thirdly, gospel proclamation. Verse 5, for what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ as Lord, with ourselves as your servants for Jesus' sake. Friends, right there, verse 5, it would be hard to describe Christian ministry more comprehensively and yet more succinctly than right there in verse 5. I mean, that is a definition of Christian ministry right there, a summary of all true gospel work. And we would expect Paul perhaps to give up, to give himself to something else, given that the God of this age is blinding the minds of unbelievers so that preaching seems to sometimes have very little effect, sharing the gospel, very little effect. And yet Paul here, he doubles down on it. He doesn't give up on it, he doubles down. You know, this is perhaps the only place in 2 Corinthians where we're given a very clear notion of exactly what Paul preached You could go back to 1 Corinthians 1 or 1 Corinthians 15 if you want to hear more. If you want to know what the preaching of the early church was like, just go to the book of Acts. Basically, the book of Acts is, hey, let's get like a best of sermons, and let's weave them together with some stories, and there it is. Book of sermons. At any rate, notice Paul. Notice the focus of Paul's preaching. It's not himself, but Jesus as Lord. That's the sum and substance of gospel preaching. You know, many would make much of themselves in Paul's day. In the Greco-Roman world, the gifted order, they were like LeBron James. They were like sports fans. They had their paparazzi, their fans. They made a lot of money. And for some, the temptation within the church would be to use the pulpit as a means of prestige, of popularity, right, of, of position, and yes, profit, lots of profit, was possible. It's why in Corinth, Paul says, it is right to pay pastors, but lest you be confused about my ministry, I won't take a salary because he didn't want to be associated with that kind of profiteering. And friends, of course, we can do the same sum if we're not careful in our own day. You know, we can make the mistake, or we can mistake, I should say, we can mistake a thriving gathering as nothing more than one who's actually succeeded in building a personal following. 
And the temptations sometimes are fueled by congregations that prefer to be entertained as opposed to instructed. Congregations that prefer charisma over character and teaching, humor over holiness. Right? Is it a nightclub? Is it a comedy show? Is it a church service? I don't know. Sometimes it's hard to tell. Friends, that's why the best preaching, the best preaching is not that preaching that makes us laugh. The personal stories and anecdotes are fine. But it's not finally that preaching that makes us laugh. It's not finally that preaching that makes us feel good when we walk out. Or preaching that is not objectionable or very easily digestible. The best preaching is that which lifts our eyes off of ourselves and lifts them up and looks to Christ. That's the best preaching. Not man-centered preaching, God-centered preaching, Paul says. You know, we think of Christianity. When we think of our own walk, our, our thoughts shouldn't go to, who's my preacher? No, it's, who's, who's Christ? Who is Jesus? We need to be building our own spiritual lives into Christ and not into a preacher, not into some promoter, perhaps. You know, friends, my days are numbered. I've been here six years some of you have noticed you've gotten a little older. I don't take offense to it, right? Closer to heaven, closer to glory. My days are numbered. I am but dust, and to dust I return. Right? I'm keeping this pulpit warm, so to speak, for the next guy or until Christ returns. We need to take our eyes, and we need to fix them on Christ. When we take them off Christ, what do pulpits become? They become soapboxes. How often, sadly, do we find that? Soapboxes where pastors, right, they pontificate. They got all their pet themes, right? They got all their biases, and that's what they talk about in pulpits. And somewhere God's word gets lost along the way. To preach Christ as Lord means we preach him, not us. Recognize without Christ, when we take our eyes off this ministry of mercy, his grace to sinners, just all preaching, all it does is just degenerates into a kind of vapid moralism. That's the best it is. You know, friends, just like parenting, if we're not careful, if we're not careful like parenting, you know, if, if we assume the end of our preaching is just to make people virtuous, or maybe it's to make men honest, or sober, or benevolent, or faithful, recognize all that represents is an attempt to raise fruit without trees. It accomplishes nothing. It's graceless. It's Christless. Paul says we preach Christ as servants. Right? We don't go to Jesus in order to succeed. We go to Jesus in order to be a slave, to serve. If Christ is Lord, then you know what that means? You're not, and neither am I. Christ is. You know, in this regard of just preaching Christ, cherishing Christ, elevating him, I love, I may have read this before, but it's worth noting again, I love how Hughes Oliphant Old describes John MacArthur. And I know John has said a few foolish things in the past few years, and every now and then I occasionally disagree with them. But the reality is, if you look, who of us hasn't said a few foolish things, right? If you look over the totality of his ministry, there is one thing he's prized. He's prized the plain teaching of the scriptures. And I love what Hughes says of him. He says, here, referring to MacArthur, is a preacher who has nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks, or charm. 
Wouldn't you love someone in, an, in a biography saying, yeah, that's what I think of you? Nothing. Nothing in the way of a winning personality, good looks or charm. Here's a preacher who offers us nothing in the way of sophisticated homiletical packaging. No one would suggest he is the master of the art of oratory. What he seems to have, though, is a witness to true authority. He recognizes in Scripture the Word of God. And when he preaches, it is Scripture that one hears. It is not the words of John MacArthur that are so interesting as it is the Word of God that is of surpassing interest. And that's why one listens. Friends, that's right there what it means to preach Christ and not ourselves. To have that experience. We want that in our churches. We want to pray for that in our pastors. For in that preaching, God shines the light of the knowledge of his glory into human hearts. Paul says, verse 6. And right there, what what Paul's doing is he's grabbing this image of Genesis 1-3. And he's also marrying it with Isaiah 9-2. You remember Isaiah 9? The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. So where Satan has blinded us so that we cannot see, God shines light into our hearts so that we can see. So so notice this is what God does. And in this sense, conversion is being presented as illumination. It's what happened on the road to Damascus that we read about earlier. We read Paul's account later in Acts 26 of that, account, of, of that conversion on the road to Damascus. Because, friends, naturally our hearts, they're not light. They're not bright. They're dark and they're deceitful. You know, we're told today, the world will tell us today, that our hearts, right, what are our hearts? They're the solution. What are we all to do with our own hearts? We're to look within. But the Bible, friends, says our hearts are in fact the problem. It's not education, not politics, not economics. The human heart is the problem. It's why follow your heart is the worst advice you could possibly receive. It's the worst advice you could possibly give. Right? Be true to you. You can try it. It just won't go well with you. None of us, friends, are on spiritual pilgrimages to find God God is not out there hiding, just waiting for us to discover him. No, God must reveal himself to us. And that exactly is the spiritual transformation we need. New hearts that only God can give through the proclamation of Jesus Christ. And friends, that defined Paul's cross-cultural ministry work. New hearts that God only gives through the preaching of his gospel. Faithful preaching followed by faithful church planning. Friends, that's what cross-cultural work means. It's why missions and cross-cultural work that does not prioritize what Paul so obviously prioritizes in preaching and church planting, friends, that's not actually biblical missions. Not as the Bible finally talks about it. That's not to say we shouldn't do humanitarian work or educational work, or medical work. Those are good things. Those are helpful things. Those are indeed wonderful and laudable things. But friends, those things are just the entree into gospel work. They're not the essence of it. That is gospel preaching and gospel planting of churches. Right? Share Christ and gather those converts into churches. 
That's missions work. That's what Paul is doing. That's what we want to continue to support as a congregation. Friend in life, all of us will find ourselves in that moment where we're, right, we're tempted to quit, throw in the towel. It could be on a mountain range. It could be in a marriage. In our case, it was a mountain range and a marriage all at the same time. <laughs> Paul knew that struggle. He knew that fight. What motivated Paul? What propelled him? What drove him? It was a deep and overwhelming sense of God's mercy. Paul knew what it meant to be a recipient of that which he did not deserve. To have his life transformed by that mercy. His own merit wasn't sufficient and he knew it. Christ was. And that was the gift God had given him. Friends, that's why he endured such rejection. He understood the battle was much larger than his own health and wealth and happiness. The battle was about the souls of humanity itself, which is why he endured the rejection and continued in faithful proclamation, praying that as he had received the light of the gospel, so he might bear that as a lamp unto the nations. Gospel dedication, despite rejection, through faithful proclamation. Friends, will that define us and will it even describe you and your own lives? Let's pray. Oh God, we ask that you would continue to work this gracious mercy in us. Lord, that we would delight in that which we have received in Christ. Lord, for those who may be blinded by their sin and have no ears to hear your voice, oh God, we pray that you would in your mercy, shine the goodness and the light and the gospel of Jesus Christ, the glory of God to them, reveal to them the goodness of Jesus and the mercy of Jesus. Lord, encourage us as we sing and as we prepare to take the supper together. In Jesus' name, amen.